What a tremendous opportunity to be with you. It's a great joy to be back here with John and Dawn and with all of you. And we have, many of us, been friends for many years. And I thank you for the gift of your friendship. It's a great joy to serve Jesus with you. So bringing you greetings from uh, my family back in the, in the States and the church I serve in Nashville, Tennessee, Christ Community Church there. Love worshiping with you. Love sensing God's presence with you. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. And with the youth away, I want to talk about them. They're a blessing to us in a lot of ways. My young, we still have one more at home, Anna, who I hope will get over here and be part of a mission team or something at some point in the near future. She'll be 16 in a couple of weeks. And, um, but when she was five, we were driving home from a worship service in Austin, Texas, where we were living at the time. And uh, so driving home, and she said, Dad, she said, um, why do you pray before you preach? And I said, well, I, I pray for the Lord to help me. And she said, well, well, why doesn't he? One of the things that our children do is they, they lead us to places of prayer. And all the parents said, amen. Uh, they bring us to places where we cry out to God. And in uh, Mark chapter 9, there is an instance of this, of a man praying for his son. It's a desperate situation. It's one of those texts that's hard to read through, really, because of the challenge of it. Now, what's happened is the transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and Christ is transfigured before them. He is made luminous translucent, if you will, the glory and the majesty of who he is as the second person of the Trinity is shown openly to these disciples, and he's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and it's so glorious and so spectacular. Peter says, let's just get three tents and stay right here. But of course, they can't stay right there. The glory cloud is all around them. They hear the voice of the Father. It's one of those mountaintop experiences that everyone would want to simply make their permanent home. But they have to go back down the mountain. And as soon as they get to the bottom of the mountain, they walk out of that glorious presence into glorious chaos. And it surrounds the dark activity, the very sinister activity that is taking place with a young person and the desperation of a father that is looking for answers for that child. In verse 14, when they came to the disciples, that is Jesus and Peter and James and John coming back down the mountain, a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit. It makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. I want us to remember that word this morning. They brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening from childhood? And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And this is the word of the Lord. So uh, bearing Anna's words in mind, let's pray and ask God's blessing and to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we do ask you to guide and help and instruct us this morning. Let the same Holy Spirit who inspired Mark to write these words, write them too on our hearts and transform us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. There's so much going on in this text. There's about six months worth of good preaching, and John told me I only have two hours. So I want to I get stuck right in here and uh, get us to it. Um, there's this wonderful verse right in the middle where the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a phrase which probably many of us have said, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, responding to a particular situation. I want us to just go there for just a moment. We'll come back to it. I want us to notice, though, at this outset that the phrase, I believe, help my unbelief, is in relationship to the struggle that this father is going through, a struggle of faith, for his son, for his own child. And so there is a difference between faith in and faith for. Many times, if you stop and think about it, you probably think, my faith in Christ, with regard to my own salvation, is firm. It's clear. It's settled. But your faith for others, your faith in Christ, not for yourself, but for others, is sometimes more easily assailed. You think about your own salvation and you say, my faith in Christ is sure. But when you think about those that you love and you care for and you're trusting God for his work in their lives, there are going to be times where you see things going on where you go, Lord, I, I just don't know. Now, how many of you can relate to saying about someone, I just don't know? But how many of you can relate to that about your own heart? Well, I just don't know. There are times when we look at a situation that we're in and we say, Lord, what are you doing? And this is particularly true in regard to our children and the young people. And I want you to notice, we're not talking about a small person here. When Jesus says, how long has this been happening? He says, from childhood. So we're dealing with a, a large-scale child, right? This is somebody probably in their mid-teens. This is someone who's been raised as part of the covenant community. He would have been circumcised on the eighth day. He would have grown up in the synagogue. He would have sung the Psalms. He would have listened to the rabbis. He would have been raised in the community of faith. And yet, here he is in a desperate condition. The enemy has somehow found a foothold in his life. 
and is controlling him. How did that happen? What was the gateway for that? Well, we don't know. We're not told. But we know that it happened within the community of faith. It's inside the context of believing people where that foothold happened. We shouldn't be shocked or amazed by that. We shouldn't be shocked or amazed when we see young people struggle, where we see the foothold of darkness in the lives of people that are inside the church, inside the community of faith. And it's important for us, when we see that happen, that we do what Jesus said. Jesus said, bring him where? To me. Now listen, you bring your kids lots of places. You may take them to a great concert. You may take them to a wonderful athletic performance. You may take them to see a brilliant artist. You may take them to any number of different people that you know, you hope, will have a very positive impact on your life. But parents, you can't bring your children to anyone more significant and important than Jesus. Bring him to me. And so when we see young people, when they're tied up, when there's this work that's going on inside of them, which is very deeply troubling, it's important for us to realize, first of all, listen to me, you can't fix them. You can't fix them. Jesus said what? Fix him. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said what? Bring him to me. I can do this. Bring him to me. So what, why do we do this with our children? What is the basis of it? Why do we expect God to be at work in their lives? Well, let's remember that our children have a unique relationship to God. Now, you've heard it said, God has no grandchildren, and that's true in the sense that every single person must have their own relationship with God and their own faith. Yet it is also true that the children of believers stand in a unique relationship to God. Let me just show you this for just an example. How many of you had at least one Christian parent? Let me see your hand. Now, how many of you had no Christian parent? Let me see your hands. All right, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now, that means that in your lives is the beginning, those of you who did not have a Christian parent, is the beginning of a whole new covenant line. And those of you who had Christian parents, you have been influenced by the faith in which you grew up, in that atmosphere of belief, in that atmosphere of prayer, in that atmosphere of hope. Because in the Bible, when God lays hold of people, He never lays hold of them alone. He always takes hold of them and their children after them. That goes all the way back to Abram. God said, I'm going to make my covenant with you and with your seed, and through your seed I'm going to bring blessing to the whole earth. The Scriptures say over and over again, one generation will praise your name to the next. So when I see Nathan standing up here, when I know of Jamie, when I watch Daniel, and I see what John and Dawn have invested in them, when I see you and your children and your grandchildren, I'm seeing fulfilled right in front of our eyes that ancient story from Scripture, one generation will praise your name to the next. We sometimes miss this, particularly when we're reading through the Bible and we get to all of, the, we get to all of those chapters that have the genealogies in them. Don't you love those parts of the Bible? Just name after unpronounceable name. What do you do when, if you're reading through the Bible and you come to those chapters? You skip them, don't you? That's exactly what you do. And John, you've probably never preached on the genealogies, have you? Well, today, 1 Chronicles 11, let's read. No, we probably don't do that. But yet, yet, those long lists of names, these, these genealogies are one generation telling the next. It's in fact the skeletal system 
of redemptive history. It's the, what the whole story of the Bible hangs on so that when, for instance, Matthew and Luke begin the story of Jesus, they go, let us tell you a genealogy. And you and I look at that and go, oh, please get to the good bits. But for them, it was vital because God started with a covenant and the covenant moves across generations. One generation will praise your name to the next. So what about the generation that's rising up right now? What a generation of opportunity. It's a generation of opportunity, and I believe that's one of the reasons why it's a generation under attack. Do you know today that 42% of the world's population is under the age of 25? The average Christian in the world today is not white, but brown, and not male, but female. And this average Christian has never heard of C.S. Lewis and has probably never read many of the periodicals we might pick up. This average Christian lives in sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia or South America. And this average Christian is also willing to suffer because the church in all of that part of the world is suffering intensely. And rather than abandoning the faith, this rising, swelling generation of believers in the southern half of the world, which is growing so rapidly, it's outpacing the birth rate in many nations, the church is growing so fast, despite all the suffering, despite all the persecution, they're sending people north to re-evangelize the lands that once sent missionaries to them. And one generation is telling another of the mighty deeds of God. Closer to home, of course, closer to home, we might say, but I see a different story. And I want to zero in on that for just a moment. Because closer to home, in my experience and in yours, I've had these conversations with leaders on both sides of the Atlantic. There is a growing trend in young people to abandon the church and to abandon the faith. It seems, in fact, to have been staggering numbers that are turning away. In, um, I'll just relate our own experience. I don't have the exact stats for over here. But let me tell you a couple of alarming things from our side. Between 2006 and 2016, the suicide rate among young people ages 10 to 16, where I live, went up 70%. Do you know for the third straight year, life expectancy in my country went down? And the last time that happened was in World War I. And you had to add in the victims of the Spanish flu to the war casualties to get those numbers. So there's a great assault of death. And there's a great assault of abandoning the faith. We lose in evangelical churches 260,000 young people between the ages of 18 and 29 every year. That's 712 young people a day saying so long to the church. That is not sustainable. Why are they going? And what's to be done about it? And why is this happening? Well, there are a great many reasons, of course, that one could point to. There are a great many things which are afflicting them. The BBC did a global study a couple of years ago to talk about something Daniel mentioned earlier, which is loneliness, and found that 60% of the global population of teenagers experience loneliness and isolation. 60%. Confessed 
that it was an ongoing issue in their life. And what's interesting about that, when I've talked with teenagers back home, is I say, why are you so isolated? And one of the things they hold up is the thing they're most addicted to, their phones. They've never been more virtually connected and never more relationally degraded. And so they'll play games with large circles of people, but none of them are sitting in the same room. They're all just doing it online. And they text each other back and forth, but nobody's going face to face. And when I talk with our student ministry leaders, I sat them down a couple weeks ago, give me the number one thing that you notice with teenagers right now. And they all talked about a growing sense of isolation. And the isolation is made even more serious because of the images that they see on those communication devices, whether it's in uh, Instagram or some other mode of communication, that says, look at this life, look at this beautiful person, this remarkably attractive physical specimen of a model, or look at this lifestyle that's been achieved, look at this celebrity, this is what your life is supposed to look like. And they feel that they cannot compete with it. They can't get up with it. And so this withdrawal takes place, and it leads, in many cases, to self-harm. And that's what's driving some of these suicidal tendencies as well. When you notice these things, when you notice that a generation's under attack, biblically, though, whatever the sociological reasons may be, biblically, when you see a generation that's coming under attack, you have to think biblically about this now, especially if it's a generation that's like this young man that's in the covenant community. He's part of the family of faith, and the parents are going, what's going on? I need to see God at work in this young person's life. I've raised them in the community of faith. I've brought them along to the synagogue. They've heard the best rabbis, guest rabbis from see where, 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 what, what, what more is to be done? Biblically, there are different assaults on generations. And it's very, very interesting what this enemy was doing to this boy. The father said, when the enemy takes hold of him, it tries to throw him into two things. What are they? Fire and water. Now see, if you think like a good Hebrew person and you know your Old Testament, you put yourself in these people's sandals, you go, this isn't the first time the enemy tried to throw people into the water and into the fire. There have been other generations, other young people that were thrown into the water and thrown into the fire. Who was thrown into the water? Well, that was Moses' generation, wasn't it? Right? Remember when Moses was born, what was going on? Pharaoh was causing the baby boys to be thrown into the Nile River, filling the Nile River with their blood. Moses is floated in a basket by his mother out into the Nile where he's rescued. Adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in all the learning of the Egyptians, delivered, listen to this, to become a deliverer and to go back. And through his ministry, the Nile will turn to blood again. But it is a sign of judgment as God begins to deliver his people. And what about fire? When, was, when, were, when were the young people of Israel thrown into the fire? Daniel's, that's right, you know that, you, you learned that on your little painted chair in Sunday school. Thrown into the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shake the bed, make the bed, and off to bed we go. That's how we used to, that's how, we, that's how you remember those names when I was a kid. It's a long time ago, you know. We had flannel graph and stuff like that. Thrown into the fire. So the three Hebrew young men are hurled into the blazing furnace that Nebuchadnezzar has set. Why? Because they would not bow down. They wouldn't bow down before his golden image. Then Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, I see 
Were there not three that we threw into the fire? I see a fourth one, one like the Son of Man. And he brings him back out, and Nebuchadnezzar is himself converted and honors their God as the God, the Creator God, the Redeemer God of the whole world. Jesus, he's being thrown into the water and being thrown into the fire. What's happening? Whenever a generation of promise arises, a Moses generation, a Daniel generation, there is a strategic focusing in of the enemy to say, I'm going to take hold of them and I'm going to stop them. I'll throw them into the water. I'll throw them into the fire. But the interesting thing is the enemy always overplays his hand. And so Moses is put into the water and becomes a deliverer. The three Hebrew boys are thrown into the furnace and they come out and it leads to the conversion of the king. One of the things I want to submit to you today is that God in his mercy and kindness is helping us see what's really going on in this rising generation. I believe the rising generation that's before us that right now is marked by an abandonment of the faith is in fact a rising generation that will mark a return to faith. I believe that one of the things that's going on is that where we see the activity of the darkness, the Holy Spirit is saying, see, this is a generation of promise. This is not a lost generation. This is a Daniel generation. This is an Esther generation. This is a Moses generation. This is a generation in which I am raising up and I will turn those who were, who were the objects that were meant for destruction into vessels of mercy that bring deliverance to others. I don't believe we've ever seen a more crucial generation than these millennials and Gen Zs that are beginning to rise up. And God is going to take hold of them. And I believe many of them really are Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's and Daniel's and Esther's. They are people that God will strategically place in the world. And one generation will tell the next the mighty deeds of God. You say, but... But when I look at it, when I look at it, I want to say with the Father, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Let's remember something about faith. Let me come back to that. We've talked about the fire. We've talked about the water. Let's talk about faith. Let's come back to that. You may feel at times that your faith is weak, but faith grows, the scripture says. Abram grew strong in faith. So faith grows. So, so the faith can grow. Faith can grow. But faith, I think sometimes we think, is always, if we're really good Christian, supposed to be ever strong. Just at the point of perfection. Always expecting something miraculous. And yet in the scriptures, and yet in the scriptures, we find people right in close proximity to Jesus with faith that wavers. Faith that wavers. You see it in Peter. He says, Lord, is that you walking on the water? He says, it's me. He says, well, if it's you, call me out there. Well, come on, says Jesus. He gets out. He starts walking on the water. That's a pretty good day at the office, let's face it. That's a pretty good day. But then what happens? He sees the waves and he begins to what? He begins to sink. Jesus pulls him up and they walk back to the boat. Jesus doesn't say, go ahead, take another, take another dip, you weak faith person. Stay down there in the waves for a while. That's not the way it is. On the Mount 
of ascension. After Jesus has been raised from the dead on the Mount of Olives, he's going to ascend into heaven. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days teaching the disciples. For 40 days he's teaching them. They see the wounds in his hands. They see the wounds in his feet, the wound in his side, the scars on his forehead from the crown of thorns. They see him raised from the dead. They see him raised from the dead. You sang this morning of Jesus being raised from the dead. They saw him raised from the dead. He's standing right in front of them raised from the dead. And it says, then he's ascending into heaven. They not only saw him raised from the dead, they saw him go into heaven. How many of you wish you could have been on that 40-day teaching seminar, right? That'd have been, that's a Christian cruise to go on right there. Oh, my. How would your faith be? But it says in Matthew 28 that as they gathered there and they heard Jesus give the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, it says, and they worshipped him. But some doubted. What? What? I mean, imagine being one of the disciples standing there. You're seeing Jesus. He's got the scars. He's got the wounds. He's been teaching you for 40 days. And you're going, Lord. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I don't know if I can really buy this. Faith, it turns out, is a gift of the Spirit. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. And it grows. And faith is sometimes strong and sometimes weak. But let me tell you what never changes. The object of your faith. The object of your faith. The issue, my friends, is not the strength of your faith. The issue is the strength of the object of your faith. And that is Jesus. There's a wonderful new hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Some of you may have sung it. He Will Hold Me Fast. And in that hymn, the lyric is teaching us this very, very important truth. It is not that our grip on Jesus is so strong as is the fact that his grip on us is so persevering. The reason you're a believer today is not because you have faith that never wavers. It's because you have a Savior whose love will never fail. And so be, even when you are saying, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus comes right into the scene and he says, I will bring my mercy. The man says, have compassion, have mercy on us. The word that's used there is a funny little Greek word. It shows up in Mark chapter 1 as well. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a word that describes what was going on in Jesus' emotions when he saw a leper, a man afflicted with leprosy. The same words used here by this man saying, Jesus, I want you to feel this. And it's the word splagsnitzomai. Isn't that a great word? Splagsnitzomai. And it's a weird word, and it's a difficult word to translate. In this version, it just says, have compassion. But what it means is this. It's a word that means, I want your guts to be torn up. I want you to feel an ache inside of you. I want you to be violently torn apart on the inside. The kind of thing that happens inside of you when you see something that is so grievous, so unjust, so horrifying, that something down inside of you goes, that's got to stop. That's what the man says, Jesus, I need you to have something down inside of you that says, we're going to bring a stop to this. Splagsnitzomai. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. Would you say it with me again? Bring him to me. They're all going to be coming home shortly. But while they come home, you need to make sure you take them the rest of the way and bring them to Jesus. And so they brought him. And Jesus commanded the spirit to come out and the spirit left him. But then what does it say? <laughs> It says, then he lay there on the ground looking like what? Looked like a dead corpse. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. This is great. Things, in other words, looked a lot worse. Things looked worse before they looked better. 
But then Jesus, it says, took him by the hand, and I don't know exactly how your text reads, but in mine it says, and he arose. Now, where you are in Mark's gospel, what happens here is only weeks away from a beloved son, the beloved son, being laid out as a corpse, and then the Spirit will come and raise him up. Jesus raised this boy up and gave him back to the Father. And that was a prophetic action of what would happen a few weeks after this, when Jesus, laying in the tomb, would have the Spirit come and raise him up and bring him back to the Father. He prophesied through the deliverance of this boy his own death and burial and resurrection that would happen just a few weeks after this incident. And my friends, our faith this morning for our children. Listen to me. Listen to Peter on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, as many as God shall call to himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20, Paul says the children of believers, even if it's only one believer in the couple, he says the children of believers are holy. And he doesn't mean their behavior is holy. What does he mean? He means that they are set apart for God, that God is working in their lives. I'm telling you this morning that the promise that God has made to you concerning the Spirit's work in your life is for you and for your, if we'll do what this verse says, bring him to me. My, my brothers and sisters, we're part of a Daniel generation, an Esther generation. And you may this morning feel discouraged. I don't know, I just felt like this was a word I needed to bring here today. That for some, I didn't know the young people were going to be away. I thought I might be, you know, I thought when I was imagining this that, I'd just be praying for a bunch of them and saying, come here, you Daniel, you Esther, you scoundrel. And listen, let me tell you something. Let me just put, let me, you go, what were those people like? Daniel, where was Daniel? He's in beautiful downtown Babylon, and he's, he's working with who? Soothsayers, magicians. He's at Hogwarts. And he doesn't go, oh, I don't want to hang out with witches. No, he's like, I love this group of people. And he's, he ends up saving them. He saves them. What was Esther doing? She's part of a harem. Just your average Jewish girl. Part of the king's harem. In other words, let's see, listen, their stories were messy. Their stories were not typical. You don't typically see prophets at Hogwarts and deliverers in the harem. But it turns out that in the middle of the messiness, God was saying, those are my kids. Those are my kids. And so I want you to know this morning, you may be looking at some stories emerging in your young people's lives and going, that looks pretty messy. Uh-huh, that's your Daniel, that's your Esther. And now you're going to have to do what this man did with his son. Bring him to me. And I want us to pray that this morning. Maybe it's for your child. Maybe it's for your grandchild. Maybe you're single here today and you go, Pastor, this has really been interesting. If I had children, I'd have paid attention. Listen, friends, in this great family of God, they're not only parents, there are uncles and aunts, and you're all part of this together. So I want us to pray. You can name those young people in your heart quietly while I pray, but we're going to pray for them this morning. 
And we're going to reclaim this generation, this generation of Daniels and Esthers. Let's bring them to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we name them before you now, and we bring them to you now. Forgive us our prayerlessness. Forgive us thinking we could fix them. We bring them to you. We bring them, Lord, and we trust that you will have compassion, that you will look upon them and be moved, and you will act. And in the middle of the messiness, raise up these Daniels. Rescue these Esthers. You are bringing them to the king for such a time as this. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will rescue them from the, the threat and the jaws of death and darkness. You will bring about a great deliverance from the powers of wickedness and evil. You will break through these things with the power of your grace and restore to them the joy of your salvation and make of them like Moses, a generation of deliverance. In their being delivered, make of them deliverers. In Jesus' name. How many of you have seen um, Les Mis? You've been, you've been there. You've seen. In the, there's this beautiful, at the, at, towards, right towards the very end, Jean Valjean's praying, Lord, about Marius, bring him, bring him home. Bring him home. Lord, hear my prayer. Bring him home. You know, for several years, my oldest son, was a long way away, not geographically, but in his heart. But I learned something from the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Half of my wife's family were Eastern Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox. And when they'd pray over the bread and they'd break it, these crumbs would fall, and they would pray over the broken crumbs as they brought them together, and they would name them, the names of children, to bring the scattered sheep back together. And for years, I, whenever I'd, we'd have the Eucharist, and on Sunday mornings in worship, I'd break the bread and I'd gather the crumbs. And as I'm gathering the crumbs, I say, Lord, bring them home, bring them home. And you know what? Now on Sunday mornings, my son stands next and he helps me serve communion to other people. God does hear the prayer of Jean Valjean's. He does bring them home. And I'm going to trust God with you that you'll see your Daniels and your Jeremiah's and your Ezekiel's and your Esther's come all the way home.